uh, as you're turning to Exodus chapter 30, uh, Exodus chapter 30 this morning, uh, for those of you, uh, the five of you soccer fans out there, um, uh, while I'm preaching, uh, amens are always welcome, but I would prefer not to hear goal in the middle of the message this morning. Uh, at least not if you're not going to tell me whose goal it was, okay? So here we are. We're Exodus chapter 30. As you're turning there this morning, um, uh, Brother Zach and Carrie and family uh, made their way down to Florida. He was invited to um, a 40th birthday party, a surprise party for a friend. Uh, and so that's where they are. They're blazing the trail down south for us. The Pamblancos are heading south as well uh, for the first winter in four. But uh, one little known fact about Zach Anderson, our new uh, interim uh, minister for youth, the director of youth there, um, he is an olfactory connoisseur an olfactory connoisseur. Now, lest you think that I'm making this up, after we developed our friendship uh, to the point where he felt comfortable enough to do so, our bathroom soaps got an upgrade from the sterile, you know, hospital-smelling soft soap that we were working through. You know, we got like a 20-pack of those during the pandemic, and so we just have the soft soap out there, right? You know, providing something for the guest bathroom. But that's right. Zach Anderson could not bother his hands with the pedestrian, sterile-smelling soft soap. He started bringing his own soap from Bath and Body Works to leave for use when he came over for Bible study and Monday night football and all this. And he even left a second set of soap for us to use in our own bathroom. I felt a little judged by that, if I'm honest. (laughs) And so cinnamon apple and sweater weather, to be specific made their way to our bathroom sinks. Now, it seems obvious that I should stand up here and defend my manliness by saying that I did not enjoy the sweet aroma of cinnamon and apple wafting up to my nose each morning, but I would be lying. (laughs) Honestly, I can hardly wait for the new marshmallow fireside to be conveniently left behind when Zach comes for another visit. Now, all kidding aside, there is something incredible about God's gift of smell to us. God's gift of smell. Some of our strongest memories are linked by a connection to the olfactory senses. I didn't know if you knew that, but it's true. And although God is spirit, God doesn't have a body, he doesn't have nostrils like we do, the metaphor is plain from the idea of scripture. And the text that we'll read today The offering of incense on the altar is, as it were, a pleasing aroma to God as he dwelled in his tent. So let's read about the incense altar together, if you would stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word. And I'll be reading verses 1 through 10 of Exodus chapter 30. These are God's instructions to Moses on the mountain. He says in verse 1, You are to make an altar for the burning of incense. Make it of acacia wood. It must be square, 18 inches long and 18 inches wide. It must be 36 inches high. Its horns must be of one piece with it. Overlay its top all around its sides and its horns with pure gold. Make a gold molding all around it. Make two gold rings for it under the molding on two of its sides Put these on opposite sides of it to be holders for the poles to carry it with. Make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. 
You are to place the altar in front of the curtain by the Ark of the Testimony, in front of the mercy seat that is over the testimony, where I will meet with you. Aaron must burn fragrant incense on it. He must burn it every morning when he tends the lamps. When Aaron sets the lamps up at twilight, he must burn incense. There is to be an incense offering before the Lord throughout your generations. You must not offer unauthorized incense on it or burnt or grain offering. You are not to pour a drink offering on it. Once a year, Aaron is to perform the atonement ceremony for the altar. Throughout your generations, he is to perform the atonement ceremony for it once a year with the blood of the sin offering for atonement on the horns. The altar is especially holy to the Lord. This is God's word. Thank you for standing and reading it with me, and you may be seated. Will you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we do pray that this time we would learn from your word as we've gathered around it. Lord, would you teach our hearts and instruct us from it? God, I pray for uh, hearts to be uh, caused to obey, to, to want to know more about this incense altar and what, it's, what it means, and Lord, to apply those things to our lives. Lord, would you help us open our eyes so that we might, might behold wonderful things from your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, like the other pieces of furniture from the tabernacle as we've gone through this series, I want us to very briefly consider the physical features of the incense altar before we move right along into its significance. It was small and square, about three feet high. The incense altar was made in similar fashion to the ark, to the table of the presence. It was acacia wood overlaid with gold, and it had rings and poles for its transportation. This is all kind of par for the course by now. Now, being square and having horns, it did have a thematic tie to the bronze altar that was in the courtyard. And I want to explore that tie-in, that thematic tie-in later when we consider this incense altar's significance. The priests were not free to use this altar any way they pleased. Like everything else in the tabernacle, the altar for incense came with specific instructions. It was never to be used for burnt offerings, grain offerings, or drink offerings. It was only for incense. And the only incense the priests were allowed to use was a special blend of spices described at the end of chapter 30. So if you would look at the end of the chapter at verses 34 through 38, you can read about the recipe. Begin in verse 34, we read, The Lord said to Moses, Take fragrant spices, stacti, anica, and galbanum. The spices and pure frankincense are to be in equal measures. Now, real quick, before we read verses 35 through 38, stacti is a transliterated Greek term. Transliterated just means like the word karate. That's a Japanese word that we spell out literally in English letters and say karate. It's just brought over from Greek to English. And so stacti is a Greek word, and it came from a variety of tree and plant sap. It's just different varieties of saps that you pull from trees and plants. Anika is based on an Arabic word, and it may have come from a type of mollusk. So another thing, we had dyes from mollusks. Now we have some spice stuff that goes into fragrant incense, and it would have been plentiful near the Red Sea. 
Galbanum was a gum resin made of certain plants like fennel and anise. And adding that galbanum to the mix, what it did was prolong the length that the distribution of the scent would last. And then we saw frankincense, which is one of the gifts that the wise men brought to the boy Jesus. It is a resin-like substance that is derived from certain trees in the balsam family. So all of these various components go in in equal measures, and the priests were, in verse 35, to prepare an expertly blended incense from these ingredients. It is to be seasoned with salt, pure and holy. Moses was instructed, grind some of it into a fine powder, put some in front of the testimony in the tent of meeting where I will meet with you. It must be especially holy to you. As for the incense you are making, you must not make any for yourselves using its formula. It is to be regarded by you as holy, belonging to the Lord. Anyone who makes something like it to smell its fragrance must be cut off from his people. So although the formula wasn't secretive, its use was strictly forbidden and only allowed for the priests to use in the tabernacle. Nadab and Abihu learned the consequences of disobedience to this command the hard way. And one of the things that we note from the instructions on the incense altar is that there really is not any explicitly stated significance, at least in verses 1 through 10. So we have to look at other parts of the Bible as we consider, secondly this morning, the significance of this incense altar. Now, as always, the safest way to interpret a less clear passage of Scripture is to use a more clear passage of Scripture, to use Scripture to interpret other Scripture. And I want to do this by showing you that uh, the biblical connections that I'm going to be making are the kinds of things that a study Bible would be helpful for. So just a little pause and plug, along with the book that we are recommending, a devotional book, the elders are also recommending that you consider a study Bible as a useful aid in daily Bible reading. So the book, Truth for Life 365, if you're a busy person or maybe a teenager or a child and you're just wanting to get in the habit of a daily devotion, that book has a devotional thought on a text of scripture, a secondary text that's kind of used for also devotional, like heart check kind of thing. And then at the very bottom of the page, like Brother Wayne said, the print was fine. This is the really fine print. At the very bottom of each page, there is a Bible reading plan. Uh, hopefully, over the last two years, if you followed along with the For the Love of God, Volume 1 and 2, what the elders suggested was breaking apart that McShine reading plan. There are four columns in that plan, and we've been recommending do two columns and two years ago and then two columns this past year. And so you've been reading through the whole Bible over two years. This Bible reading plan is actually the whole Bible in one year. Okay, so it's a little bit more of a pace if you've been only doing the two chapters, but those about four chapters a day will get you through reading the Bible in 2023. But what is lacking in the Truth for Life is the commentary that D.A. Carson provided, some commentary on the scripture you're reading, which is why we recommend a study Bible. Good study Bibles can help you go from being like, eh, I don't really know what just happened there, to having at least some ideas, especially in Old Testament passages or more obscure texts. So we have the CSB and the ESV study Bibles. We encourage you 
you can look and you will find, for example, if you are reading Exodus 30 in your daily Bible reading and you went to the study Bible notes, you would catch this on verses 1 through 5. The CSB study Bible says, incense is a picture of prayer. And then it lists three passages for you to go and look and see why that is. So if you had no idea, you would find that the study Bible helps you understand the comparison and then gives you text to look up to know why. And so let's look at those three texts. Psalm 141 and verse 2. David writes, Let my prayer be counted as incense before you and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. With that synonymous parallelism and poetry, David gives us this comparison. My incense as prayer and as the evening sacrifice. Then the study Bible lists Revelation 5 and verse 8. We see in Revelation 5, John gives a glimpse into heaven. And before I read that, you're going to take some of what you've learned in the preaching in this tabernacle series, and you're going to remember the tabernacle is where God dwelled with the Old Testament believers back then, and it was a shadow or picture of a heavenly reality. And so if you already have that kind of piece of information, if you're transported, as it were, by John into heaven, into the throne room, you're starting to already think maybe there's some comparison. So we read in verse 8 of chapter 5, when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell, fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Okay, the incense are the prayers of the saints in this heavenly picture. And then Revelation chapter 8, verses 3 through 4, confirms it with an even tighter connection to the book of Exodus. So we look at Revelation 8, 3. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. Now remember, where is this incense altar? Before the Ark of the Covenant, which the Old Testament calls the throne of God. So the altar before the throne, the smoke of this incense, verse 4, with the prayers of the saints, rose before God from the hand of the angel. And so these various texts help us to make the connection between incense and prayer, all of which leads J.V. Fesco to summarize in a book he wrote about the tabernacle, that the altar of incense was to be a reminder to the high priest of the need for prayer in the presence of the Lord. The prayers of the high priest were supposed to rise with the smoke of the altar, just as we see the imagery in the book of Revelation. Smoke and prayers rising together before God's throne. This means that the altar of incense then should draw our attention to the prayers of the high priest and also the prayers of God's people. The altar of incense should draw our attention to the prayers of the high priest and the prayers of God's people. Now, this summary, I think, can be seen in Luke chapter 1 and verse 10 in practice. We heard Pastor Allen mention Zechariah the priest. And let's see that while he was ministering, we see that the whole multitude of the people were praying outside the temple at the hour of incense. The, the Jewish people had made this connection the hour of incense was the hour for prayer. 
While the high priest was ministering, the people were also praying. So we're not just imposing some assumption of ours on the Exodus text. This is the way the Jewish people came to understand the altar of incense and its use. So I would argue we've discovered now its biblical significance. And we're free to draw connections then on how the high priest was the one that offered the incense and prayers. That begs for us to think about our great high priest and prayers that he offers. So I think, for example, my mind goes to two texts, John 17 and the book of Hebrews. In John 17, sometimes your Bibles might actually put high priestly prayer as a a subheading to help you understand what is taking place before Jesus is crucified. And Jesus prays for all believers, the church. He prayed for you. And he prayed for things like our um, growing in grace. He prayed for our sanctification. Jesus, our high priest, prayed for our unity, that we would be one. And so Jesus, as our high priest, interceded for us and prayed for us even before his crucifixion. But not only that, the Bible also makes it plain that because Jesus rose from the dead and ascended to be with the Father, he ever lives, to put it in Hebrews terms, he ever lives to what? Intercede for us. That Christ, our high priest, ever lives because of the power of an indestructible life to make intercession for you, for me. Christ is fulfilling his priestly office perpetually before the Father by praying and interceding for us. His prayers are always a pleasing aroma to the Father. Now, I would label those connections as essential Bible study work. As we seek, study, serve, and share together, let me encourage you to dig deep, to dig in a little bit. Some of these connections right here, I think you can find and you should find as you study God's word and you make these connections with helpful tools like a study Bible. Now, with that said, I'm going to go to a connection that I did not see at first glance, nor did I find in a study Bible, and I would call it a more subtle connection that I found as I was studying a commentator that was linking the incense altar to the bronze altar. So consider this with me. I kind of hinted at it with the physical features. Remember the bronze altar, seven and a half feet by seven and a half feet out, uh, out in the courtyard of the tabernacle. It was square and it had horns. Well, this incense altar is like a miniature version. It is also square with those four horns on it. And furthermore, the two altars are being used simultaneously. In the tabernacle worship, the two altars are being engaged at the same time. Philip Ryken explains it like this. The priests offered incense at dawn and at dusk. Something else was happening at the same time, morning and evening. The priests were out in the courtyard offering a sacrificial lamb, a daily religious ritual that was synchronized. Thus, there was a close connection between the two altars in their design and in their function. I think that's rather subtle, 
But now I want to show you that I think it is a little less than subtle when you consider a direct connection between these two altars that is explained in Leviticus chapter 16. In Leviticus 16, what we see enacted is the atonement ceremony described in chapter 30, verse 10 that we read about. Remember it said the incense altar, every year you are to make atonement for it. You are to perform an atonement ceremony for that altar. Well, what happens is some of the blood from the sacrifices on the bronze altar are then brought inside and sprinkled on the horns of the incense altar. But not only is there blood used to atone for the altar, coals from the bronze altar are brought in from outside from that altar in, and those coals are used with the incense to create a sort of smoke screen, if you will, between the presence of God and the priests that are ministering. So the significance of all of this, this subtle and not so subtle connections, the interplay between the two altars is that even our prayers to God are not acceptable to him without the shedding of blood. Even our prayers must first have been atoned for, the sacrificial blood being sprinkled on the altar that symbolized the prayer going up to God. Now there's one final aspect of significance that I want to tease out of the text this morning. I think it's here in verse 8. And so what I want us to do is see this similar connection to the last one, and that is the timing of what's taking place during priestly ministry. We've learned a lot about the tabernacle, haven't we? And about what the priests were doing. And one of the things we see is the timing of the use of the incense altar and the trimming of the lamps, as well as the sacrifice out on the bronze altar. It seemed like this piece of furniture, if you were tracking with it, should have been listed with the, um, the lamp stand and the table of showbread, right? Because we're in the holy place, okay? Remember, the tabernacle tent had two chambers, the holy of holies behind the veil and the holy place, a little bit larger. When you enter into the holy place, on your left is the lamp stand that we studied. On the right is the table of showbread. So it would have made sense list all the furniture in this room at the same time. But the altar of incense is listed here. After the priests are consecrated and their daily duties are described. And that's because what is taking place at this incense altar is a daily thing that's happening at dawn and at dusk. And it happens in concert with the trimming of the lampstand. So look, for example, with me at verse 7 and verse 8. Verse 7 says, Aaron must burn fragrant incense on this altar. He must burn it every morning when he tends the lamp. Okay, so he's going to tend the altar at the same time as the lamp. And then verse 8, when Aaron sets up the lamps at twilight, he must burn incense. There's to be an incense offering before the Lord throughout your generation. So morning and evening, you have some jobs to do as the priests. You have the sacrifice on the bronze altar, and then every time you trim the lamp, you also burn the incense. The incense and the lamps are done together. 
Now, Brother David, when he preached about the oil for the lamp, drew out some of the significance for that as well. The oil typically relates to the work of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit and his illuminating work. So what we find is that this illuminating work of the lamp was symbolic of the work of the Holy Spirit and that the intercessory prayer work at the altar of incense is symbolic of Jesus. And these two works are done in concert. The intercessory pleading and the illuminating of the lamp. Now, Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, as he's called, he talks about these two symbols in a message that he gave. He says that the symbols were made more plain in the fullness of time. When our Lord ascended to the right hand of the Father to plead for us before the throne, the Spirit descended and abided with the church. After the Lord was taken up, the disciples received the promise of the Father and they were illuminated by the Holy Spirit. Jesus, our high priest, presented the sweet savor of his own person and work before the eternal throne and the Spirit of God came down as what? Tongues of fire and lit the men like candles, Spurgeon says. As this day, as it is today, so it was at Pentecost. The Lord has not ceased to intercede, and the Spirit has not ceased to illuminate. Such that Spurgeon says, herein lies our hope of our own eternal salvation, the ceaseless plea and the quenchless light. The ceaseless plea of our high priest and the quenchless light of our lamp. But it is not only our salvation that is our hope. It is the confidence with which we go to share the gospel. Whenever we preach the gospel, we have the help of our priest and of the lamp. This was so powerful to me as I was studying in verse 8. He says, this concept of the intercessory work of Christ in concert with the illuminating work of the Spirit is our twofold confidence when we go out into the world and share the gospel. The Lord Jesus is given all power in heaven and on earth. Bible says he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God. Why? Because he ever lives to intercede for them. And so the church of God will be successful in our mission, in our errand, because it is the object of Christ's prayer. Christ is praying for you as you go forth and do his work. Christ is praying for you as you live your life in obedience to him. But then the church also has the help of the Holy Spirit, the comforter who abides with us, goes with us, and goes out with the word that we preach, making it powerful unto salvation for the sons of men. Spurgeon says, we have the incense of Christ's merit pleading with God and the light of God's spirit pleading with men. We have Christ as an advocate to God and the spirit as an advocate to men. How profound. Christ is pleading with us on our behalf before the Father and the Holy Spirit is pleading for us, as we preach and as we share the gospel with people and illuminating their hearts, giving them light and drawing them out of the darkness and into his glorious light.
So there's application for us as we consider our evangelistic efforts. We remember that we are not alone, that God is with us, and that Christ intercedes and the Spirit illuminates as we share. But I also want to draw out three other considerations of application that we've learned as we've considered the synchronization, synchronization—that's a tough word—synchronization of the timing of the bronze altar and the courtyard, the trimming of the lamps, and the offering of the incense. And what I'm arguing is that as Christians, Peter calls us priests to God. We can take three takeaways from the biblical fulfillment of the symbols of the tabernacle. First, we are to give daily thought to the importance of the blood of Christ and the forgiveness offered through his sacrificial death on the cross. We are to give daily thought to the importance of the blood of Christ. Remembering that the incense altar where prayers are made are not made willy-nilly. They're made after a yearly atoning ceremony where the blood from the bronze altar comes and uh, atones for the prayers that are going up. This is why we pray in Jesus' name. Uh, Furthermore, as these things are happening, the bronze altar is being used daily, reminding us of our daily need for Christ, that we remember his forgiveness offered to us through his shed blood. Secondly, we are to give daily thought to our need for both Christ's intercessory pleading on our behalf and the Holy Spirit's illuminating work. In other words, we are not lone rangers. We have a great high priest who ever lives to intercede for us, and we have the Holy Spirit who illuminates God's word for us. So don't think about your daily Bible reading or your activities of evangelism or the things that you go about as like, I'm going about alone in my strength to do this. Remember the work of Christ and the Spirit. And so thirdly, then as we think of ourselves as priests unto God, remember that we are to give daily priority to being a living sacrifice. We talked about the bronze altar and all that it meant and us being living sacrifices unto God offering sweet-smelling prayers to God, that we also would offer prayers to him, and that we would seek the help of the Holy Spirit to illuminate the word of God when we pray. In other words, we are to be thoughtful Christians. This is not something that is supposed to happen twice a year. Like, it's Christmas time, let's go to church. It's Easter time, let's go to church. These sacrifices, the sacrifices on the bronze altar, the incense altar, the trimming of the wick, were done every day, twice a day. In other words, the regular, never-ceasing, morning and evening ritual of the tabernacle makes it plain that we cannot and should not go long between trimming of the wick. Have you been seeking the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit? Or are you just opening up your Bible and checking off, I read my Bible today? Do you ask for the light to enlighten your heart and your eyes? We cannot and should not tarry to go before the throne of God with the sweet incense of our prayers. I started this message with the kind of joking joy of incense and smell and the pleasure of the olfactory, but 
we know that the Bible says that our prayers are a sweet-smelling aroma to God. And we cannot and should not go weeks without prayer. I loved how Brother David, as he prayed, prayed for us to make this a season of prayer. That we would be daily going before God's throne. And then we should never dare to enter or approach God's throne in prayer apart from the remembrance of the atoning work of Jesus Christ. And so every time we pray, we pray in his name and by the work Christ has already done on our behalf. So I hope from this obscure text in Exodus chapter 30, it may have seemed a little bit, not too much there at first glance, that we have found a picture, at least, of what Paul says so clearly in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, with which I close in exhortation. Brothers and sisters, we ought to pray without ceasing.